The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, from our nation's capital... This is Bloomberg Sound On. There is so much speculation right now about the Department of Justice, and it's under a haze of questions. Why does his Department of Justice treat people differently? Some people have sort of wondered if he should have appointed a special counsel. I think he did just the right thing. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. So we have received Speaker uh, McCarthy's kind invitation, and the president has accepted it. Uh, it, and looks forward to delivering the State of the Union. And I'm sure the president will get an earful on, on what our, our needs and our desires are. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The U.S. Treasury invokes extraordinary measures, warning it will run out of money by June. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics, says Secretary Janet Yellen prepares to hit the debt ceiling all over again. And after Jamie Dimon points to recession as the central case this year, we will talk possible outcomes with economist Danny Blanchflower at Dartmouth College. And as House Republicans demand information on the classified documents tied to President Biden, we sit down with Donald Ayer, former Deputy U.S. Attorney General, to consider the Justice Department's next moves. Voters in New York launched the Where's George Santos campaign. As the freshman lawmaker refuses calls to resign, we're going to cover all these stories with insights from our signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. They'll be here for the hour. Yellen says U.S. to take extraordinary steps to avert a default. Last time we heard that was August of 2021. Here we are again approaching the debt ceiling, although it's going to take a while, likely the second half of the year. They're talking September, uh, most likely, when that's a real event. But Yellen today says the measures will begin January 19 to avoid breaching the debt limit, all the while urging lawmakers to boost the ceiling to avert a devastating payments default. You know, this came up in the White House briefing today because this idea of negotiating around the debt ceiling has just already been very controversial on Capitol Hill. In fact, even held up uh, the speakership of Kevin McCarthy, who has agreed to cut spending before he makes any agreement to raise the debt ceiling. Corrine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary at the White House, though, says we're not negotiating over this. In the past, we have seen this. Uh, we have seen uh, both Republicans and Democrats come together uh, to deal with this issue. It is a. It is one of the basic items that Congress has to deal with, and it should be done without condition. So there is going to be. Uh, there's going to be uh, no negotiation over it. This is something that must get done. This, which could be a problem. 
the Treasury about $78 billion away from exhausting its borrowing authority as of the 11th of January. And some fascinating notes you can find on the terminal. Alex Harris put this together. Uh, and this is great work. As Yellen identified, the department would reach the limit January 19th, uh, which is the date strategists had identified. Uh, analysts estimate the government has until August or September until it can no longer continue paying its obligations. So we're doing this again. And I suspect we'll spend the rest of the year uh, arguing about it. Not that we want to argue with Danny Blanchflower. He joins us with insights, professor of economics at Dartmouth College and fishing extraordinaire. Danny, uh, great to have you here. I really appreciate you joining this program. Uh, Yeah, God, you just got some beauties there online. I'll have to point people to it later. Thank you. How worried are you about this? Is this just, you know, we're going through the motions here, extraordinary measures. They'll stretch out the cash. We'll be fine until September. But, you know, waiting till the last minute could be the problem. How how worried should we be about it now? I think so. Well, I think we should be concerned about it. I mean, Janet Yellen is right. The ability of the Treasury the sort of delay is, 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 is strong. I mean, the big deal is that they can defer making retirement payments for federal employees until later. So that gives them a bit of a room to maneuver. But I think, the, the, in a sense, the best analogy to this is look what happened in the UK when the trust government started to do crazy things. Yeah. And excuse my French, as they say, in the end, they ended up generating what was called a moron premium which is actually the cost of a government doing something stupid. So the U.S. government has never defaulted mm-hmm. or even shown likelihood of defaulting. And I think um, Yellen is absolutely right. The very fact that you think that this, is, you know, this might happen, in a sense, raises the long-run cost of borrowing and the credibility of the United States um, LLC. So I think this is kind of nuts. Uh, the only issue is, is it just politics? Or will they really take us to the edge? And hopefully the answer is they won't do that and a deal will be struck. Yeah. But the other thing to say is we are in weak, weak economic position where the Fed raised rates. We're hoping for a soft landing. But the idea that you would cut spending in the midst of a weak economy also makes no sense. So here we go. Well, yes, uh, here we go again. And, and, and politicians will all the while, Danny, be trying to redefine uh, exactly what the debt limit is. And this has already right. begun between Republicans and Democrats. It's it's frequently referred to as a credit card. The question is, did you did you buy something already or are you asking for money to buy something yet? Listen to Steve Scalise, uh, the majority leader uh, in the House, right. Republican leader. It's like a credit card limit. And families back home, have if they have credit cards, they have a limit on that credit card. And if they hit their limit or they're very close to it, which we are, it means you've spent more money than you have. You've, you've spent more money than you, your credit card has allowed you to spend. And if you're going to ask for an increase in the limit, at some point in time, you've got to sit down and say, why are we hitting the limit? Why are we maxing out the credit card? Because uh, this is the nation's credit card. And I suspect that you agree with that. Anybody would, right? Like if we're, if we're spending like drunken sailors, well, we, we need to establish maybe a new routine. But raising well, the debt limit is to actually. pay for money that's already been spent, correct? Well, I, no, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't actually agree with that at all. Um, this is the analogy that an economy is like a household um, is simply not true. The, the federal government is perfectly capable of borrowing money. There is no limit to it. There is no analogy whatsoever for a credit card because the federal government can simply borrow and continue to do so 
cheap police. So that makes absolutely no sense. Every single word of that was completely wrong. He would have failed my economics two class, <laughs> macroeconomics for non-economists. I could have I mean, told you that. It's, yeah, I, I could have you told you that. But then again, yeah, I mean, but no but you understand where I'm going. I, under, I appreciate that well, you don't cool. you you reject the entire comparison. But the fact is, politicians frequently, when they don't want to raise the debt ceiling, right. act like we're right. act, we, we're trying to get money for something that hasn't already been obligated. But we're actually paying debt here. Well, we're paying debt. We're paying for obligations. We're paying to borrow things. But I think what always, is always missed here is that there's two sides to this balance sheet. Mm-hmm. What are we borrowing money for? Right. Are we borrowing it to go onto a giant jamboree? And have a wild party and just blow it. <laughs> right. I mean, think about think about a firm. If you said to a firm, any firm on Bloomberg, you say, "Was it would it be a good idea for this firm to borrow?" And the answer is, well, it depends what they're borrowing for. Are they borrowing to invest in the future? Are they borrowing to put things into infrastructure to make the economy grow more in the future? So the conversation makes no sense. It depends upon you know the price of borrowing. Is the cost of borrowing low? And are you borrowing to spend on things that provide you with a higher rate of return? But the idea that this is anything like a credit card is just asinine, total and utter nonsense. This is exactly why I wanted you to come on today. I appreciate this. So <laughs> let me. I, now. <laughs> this is beautiful. You're going to have something to think about, or at least I will. Okay. Jamie Dimon speaks. Of course, the market listens. The big bank started reporting today, uh, JP Morgan among them. And. I want to bring you back to when he testified before Congress at the end of September. This is Jamie Dimon talking about the brutal headwinds that were coming. I think there's a chance, not a big chance, a small chance of a soft landing. There's a chance of a mild recession, a chance of a harder recession. And because of the war in Ukraine, I think there and the uncertainty that causes in global energy supply and food supply, there's a chance it could be worse. And I think policymakers should be prepared for the worst. So we take the right actions if and when that happens. It was around that time he referred to the coming hurricane. Right. Today on the call, he said uh, that we still do not know the ultimate effect of the headwinds coming. But he did refer to uh, the, the possibility of a recession as the central case right now. Whenever he talks right. lately, I, you do. But he, does he not no, I concern you? That. Well, obviously, the, the possibility of recessions concern me. And I've been suggesting based upon the main data that predicts recession, which is consumer confidence that a recession is coming. But I think the good way to think of this, and I think he's completely right, actually, the central case is much, yeah. much worse recession than the, than the Fed particularly has been saying. The logic, I think, is that if you think of inflation, inflation is plummeting like a stone. It's going to plummet by 0.9 or 100 basis points a month for the next six months. That is all before any of the rate rises by the Fed have actually had any effect. Ugh. And so that... So then, once we, and by June, if you follow my logic, by June you're going to have a CPI of around one, and then and then the Fed interest rate rises are going to kick in. So I think Diamond is completely right. The Fed's got it totally wrong, and the problem we're going to see, I think, and the markets have probably got it wrong. We're going to see very swift handbrake U-turns. As Diamond is right, we start to see bad data. The economy heading into recession, added to by the idea that we may cut spending at the federal level and default on the debt. So we've gone around the full circle, but I think Diamond's right. And I think Scalise was completely wrong. Wow. Fascinating. Uh, the headline I'm looking at with these banks reporting on the terminal, banks see consumers piling on debt, bolstering right. their bottom lines. How worried are you as we spend all the money we saved during COVID? We're going to have a, a, a household debt crisis as we head into that recession. Well, I, I, I would have thought so. 
And obviously, if we, with the rise in interest rates really yet to have a big impact, what we're seeing is that the first impact is people are having to take on debt. Uh, and, and obviously, that can, can't go on forever. And then you start to see default. You start to see people struggling to pay their mortgages. You start to see credit card defaults and bankruptcies. And those are the kinds of data, I think, that, that, uh, that Diamond is warning against and I'm very worried about. Uh, that people, I mean, the story for six months or so ago was consumers were saying, this is looking really bad. Yeah. I'm really worried about what's coming. So they, you know, they haven't really stopped spending yet. So what's the implication of this? Suddenly they stop spending and that slows the economy and that makes the recession as bad as Diamond's worried about. So this, this all sort of piles in together. Boy, so you're, you're not expecting a soft landing, it sounds like. Is this a, no. a long, shallow recession or, or a deep dive? Well, I think, well, the, yeah, the danger is there's a deep and long-lasting recession. I mean, that's the danger. I mean, obviously, it's done pretty well, but it's a, a lot of the logic that we're hearing is based upon no historical precedent and essentially wishful thinking. And we're starting to see lots of commentators coming out saying, hang on, Fed, you've gone far too far here. What you, you're all together saying all is going to be fine. But what if it isn't? What if the scenarios that Jamie Dimond and others are laying out happen? Yeah. What's, your, what's your back strategy? What are you going to do if this, this soft landing you'd hoped for turns out to be particularly nasty? And the indicators suggesting that, that they've got it wrong, is that, is that inflation is falling much faster than they've been saying. And they keep saying, oh, we're going to yes, raise right. rates more. But with yeah. recession plummeting, why are you raising rates more? Well, makes no sense. So they're going to start cutting next year. I think so. And it will be too late. I think so. Do you ice fish this time of year? No, 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 no. What I do is the opposite to that. I go to somewhere warm. Okay, I'll good. Florida, and I go, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a snook guy. I like to go fish for snook. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you can look uh, on my I, website to see my pictures. Hey, listen, you got. You need to, everyone, go check his website. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. These things are like they're bigger than I am. Uh, you must know what you're I doing. I won yesterday at 30 inch. That's a big fish. I know what the weather is in New Hampshire, though, this time of year. I'm a New England boy, I'm which is Florida. why I asked. I'm in Florida now. I'm not those, in New Hampshire. Those I guys out, they sit out on the ice and eat cold hot dogs. It's a horror. No, I, I, I could do never that. do that. Danny, I, I want to meet you in person sometime. Have fun yes, down sir. there. Cool. Danny Blanchflower, yes, professor of economics at, well, Dartmouth College. He's just not there at the moment. Snook. Let's assemble the panel for their take on this. Rick Davis, Jeannie Shansano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, we could talk to Danny all day, but I want your insights here, Jeannie. The White House uh, is, has, knows everything we know about this. They're talking about the economic plan working. They seem confident, at least publicly, in a soft landing. But they have to be having conversations like the one we just had inside the West Wing. You, you hope they are, and you hope that they are really circumspect and very, very careful this time around. It wasn't that long ago we were all talking about the fact that they kept denying, you know, that so much of what was going on, and then they had to, you know, eat their words. So at this point, they have to be very careful. And the line they should be using, and I hope I heard it yesterday, they should continue, is we're moving in the right direction, but we're not out of the woods yet, mm -hmm. because 6.5 inflation is not a good number. It's three times more than the Fed says we should be at to start with. And, of course, people are still feeling an awful lot of pain in the economy. So they have to be very careful with their messaging. And that is not Joe Biden's strongest suit. So they've <laughs> got to keep him under wraps. And th this is why they defer to the Fed, right, Rick? This is the whole independent Fed. We don't comment on that because they don't want to be responsible for what's about to happen. 
Yeah, they certainly want somebody to take some of the shared blame if it does. They know that they're going to get hit by Republicans in Congress and governors and others uh, who are going to be unhappy with the outcome if if Jamie Dimon has his way. And I'm sure he would prefer to have a soft landing. But uh, as you just described in your last interview, uh, nobody really knows and the potential still exists you know, to have a pretty bad outcome on recession. So, um, yeah, I, I, the Biden administration wants the Fed to take the responsibility for this. It mm-hmm. is primarily their responsibility, uh, and uh, and and they're going to kind of dodge it. Uh, this is why they never talk about it. You know, when you interview uh, uh, people on uh, the White House staff uh, regarding this, they never talk about inflation. Right. So uh, it's it's just something that is what they've gotten used to and and whether it's right or wrong that's their line and they're sticking to it well so that means the central theme of the presidential campaign at that point it's hard to project and know what that will feel like genie but it 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 doesn't feel good it's all anyone's going to be talking about if we end up in a a recession certainly a deep one it's going to be about rebuilding the american economy and joe biden's going to be on the ropes in that conversation if he's running against donald trump Yes, but Joe Biden also, we can't forget, has a really good foil in the Republicans in the House. I mean, if you just think about today, we heard Kevin McCarthy saying they're not going to cut Social Security, yet he has promised to either freeze spending or have automatic cuts. That is a political gift to the Democrats, not necessarily the economy, but Joe Biden running. Because mm. we talk about the cuts to, you know, potentially defense spending 10%. Yeah. That's enormous. But what about the cuts to discretionary spending? Are the Republicans going to follow Rick Scott down a road where they say they're cutting Social Security and Medicare? That's a political gift to Joe Biden if they try to go in that direction. And I think the White House is going to use that as best they can politically. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, our signature panel in place for the Friday edition as we think big thoughts here following an absolutely crazy week. We'll keep unpacking everything we've learned over the last five days. And coming up, the Biden documents. We'll get to that in a sit-down conversation with Donald Ayer, former U.S. Deputy Attorney General. On the fastest hour in politics, this is Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? 
That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Update on the, the Biden documents case here. You might have heard veteran lawyer Bob Bauer uh, is representing Joe Biden, personal lawyer on the classified documents investigation. He served as White House counsel to former President Obama, and he advised Biden during the, the 20 campaign, which answers some of the questions asked during the news briefing yesterday. Glad to say we have an opportunity to talk about this whole situation, this whole case uh, with a real expert, a voice of experience. Donald Ayer joins us, former U.S. Deputy Attorney General. Donald, welcome back to Bloomberg. Thank you. It's great great to see you in person. We spoke at length about the Trump documents when that story first broke. The FBI went to Mar-a-Lago. All hell breaks loose. How are you looking at Joe Biden's case? There are similarities, but Donald, there are also some major differences. Right. Well, I think I think the fact that this comes up and is easily described as Joe Biden had had had, had classified documents too is a source of real confusion. And I think it's a confusion for the public in understanding this. And so I think for that reason, uh, Merrick Garland did just the right thing. Some people have sort of wondered if he should have appointed a special counsel. I think he did just the right thing because I think it's very important on, on big, important cases for the people of the country to be able to look at what's being done and feel as though Things are being handled in a fair, even-handed, and non-political way. And mm-hmm. so he brings in a highly qualified, very experienced prosecutor who is a Trump appointee as a U.S. attorney, and he says, here, I need you to do this, and mm-hmm. I need you to look at this. So that's exactly the right thing, and I think it was the right thing with regard to the Trump documents, too. Um, so good that that happened, but at the same time, you have to look carefully at what do we know now about the situation. And the answer when you ask that question is that this is a situation that on its face from what we know now does not look anything like the situation that we know about Trump beyond the fact that there are classified documents found. And the big issue is the issue of intent with regard to concealment, with regard to um, holding the documents, resisting the, the return of them, anything that would indicate some purpose. And the reason why is the criminal statutes that are relevant um, make that intent the critical element. Mm-hmm. So when you come to that, there's nothing on these facts so far that we know of that suggests anything other than an inadvertent possession of them and an and immediate uh, insistence on returning them as soon as they were found. So the fact that they were handed over immediately upon their discovery is important to you, not the fact that they were sitting around since 2016, potentially. Well, that's not good. There's no question that that's a bad thing. That's inappropriate. Yeah. It, it was not a proper thing to do. And I think we all have to recognize that. And that's why appointing a special counsel is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. But when prosecutors make decisions about prosecuting cases involving these documents, there are a great many um, circumstances where there is this process somehow or other the documents are out there. And the thing 
that, that's critical. When you read the various statutes, the espionage statute, the statute relating to obstruction, um, other statutes, um, the issue that's focused on is intentional either concealment, obstruction of the effort to get them back, mm-hmm. um, intentional action to prevent the return of the document. And obstruction is a real part of the Trump case. That's, that's the point, right? That they Absolutely. were under subpoena and yet they still were not handed. Absolutely, over. and we'll see where that goes. That's it's yeah. got its own special counsel, and and that's rolling ahead. But there's been an awful lot in the public record that's indicative of of an active effort over an extended period to resist the return of classified documents. Yeah. And that's the key element, if indeed the evidence supports that. That's the thing that makes this a plausible criminal case. The White House seemed to step in it a little bit by not revealing everything at once. And there were some tough questions for not only the president, but the press secretary yesterday. Does it matter from a legal standpoint that the White House did not reveal everything it knew when the first batch came to light? Well, I, th- I think I, I think what needs to be known, and that's part of why the special counsel's there and what he'll do is, well, why is that? Yeah. What happened? Um, And I don't know specifically why, but there's a good plausible explanation, which is, hey, look, if you find some of these documents and and what I've read, I'm not sure it's right, but I've read the archivist um, may well have said, hey, you know, we figured out that when there's some documents somewhere, there might be more documents somewhere. So why don't you go and conduct a thorough investigation? Uh Um, And so my guess is that's what occurred. And so once you found these documents, it was like, hey, we better turn the place inside out and look at everywhere they could be. Um, I agree with your point that from an optics point of view, even though it may be one event that triggered broad searches that right. produced a few more documents, so it's really one occasion that, that is – but it would have been far better if they could have just done it, announced it at once yes. and said, yes, Joe Biden had improperly a bunch of documents that he shouldn't have had, and, mm-hmm. and we gave them all back. Merrick Arlen indicated, though, that on December 20th, they learned about a second batch. And I think that's what got reporters asking the questions that they still can't get an answer to. Right. No, that's true. And and, and the only thing is, well, how did they discover those? And if they discovered them, because once they found the first ones, they searched a lot more. It's all kind of part of the same thing. But you're right. It's announced on two different about two different occasions. And nothing's been made clear about that at this point. How important, if at all, are the contents of these documents versus the way they were handled? Well, I think it could depend on. I mean, I think yeah. I think obviously if they were the levels all, of classification. That's right. The levels of classification, and then you know what what they are, and and how sensitive they are, and how unreasonable was it to have them be anywhere other than in a locked place in the government, mm. you know, in a skiff or somewhere like that. Yes. Um, you know, and you don't know that till you know what they are. I mean, if they're the nuclear secrets. On the one hand, that's an, that's one thing, and yes. if they're some some low-level classified documents, that's another thing. And mm-hmm. obviously, that's one element that the special counsel needs to look at and think about what significance it has. Republicans, beginning with Kevin McCarthy, are asking, "Where's the raid? Why no photograph of the documents all over the floor?" Or talk about the delineation there. Obviously, the FBI was not involved in this. Is that the simple answer? Well, there, 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 there would never have been a raid or, or a search. Uh, there never would have been a search warrant. So they didn't seek a search warrant for Donald Trump for 
you know, more well over a year. Right. And that was after efforts, repeated efforts, you know, interactions and going to Florida and, and trying to get the documents back and mm-hmm. getting a getting a signed affidavit saying we've turned everything over and then it turns out they hadn't turned everything over. I mean, all of this stuff, you, you never get around to doing a search warrant for this stuff on a former high official of the government until you got a lot of stuff that looks incredibly fishy. That's not what we have here. I mean, and, nobody and ever when, would have gone looking for a, for a search warrant on this based right. on the record we know about. Because they were turned over yeah. uh, when yeah. they were discovered. In this case, uh, that, but that's why, because the FBI was there, they would lay out items on the floor and photograph them for the sake of, you tell me. Well, I, I think that's that's not an unusual practice to make a record of what they found yes, at the place right. where they found it, mm-hmm. rather than only. Of course, they do create a manual record of what they got, and it and, and, and you know, and it's there in writing. But it's I think not unusual to take photographs when you do a not at all unusual. It's 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 routine to take photographs of well, what did we find and where did we find it? And yeah. so I think it's an informal way to make a record. I think that's you know hype that people have taken and tried to make sound like police state tactics. It's not that at least. It wouldn't have been impressive if there weren't so darn many classified documents that had been found. And that's not the the FBI's fault. It's true. And with the Time magazine mixed in, it's just it's something to think about. I wouldn't want to be Merrick Garland right now if you want to talk about some of the hardest jobs in Washington. But of course, he's moved this off his plate with these two uh, special counsel appointments. How much time do you give them to come back with their findings. Well, I think you have to give them all the time they want to take. I think you don't. I think one thing Merrick Garland knows very, very well, and it's it's shown by, you know, his leaving in place mm-hmm. um, the investigations from uh, from the Trump administration and not interfering uh, with them. I think he's going to give them the time they need. I think my guess is I know I don't I know a little about both of those people. They're diligent, hardworking, and they understand this is highly pressing stuff. Yeah. So they're going to move along quite quickly, but Merrick's not going to be sitting here saying, okay, come on, get on with this. Right. We need to have an answer. That's not going to happen. They are in charge of their own investigations that independence uh, has been noted. Who makes the decision on whether to indict? Is that Merrick Garland? Well, I think under the regulation, there is the opportunity for Merrick Garland to you know, take a recommendation and accept it or override it. Okay. I would suggest that the high likelihood, it's more than a high likelihood, I would say it's an extraordinarily high likelihood that Merrick Garland, barring some incredible and enormously unlikely error that he sees in mm-hmm. what one of these people has done, which I think is about a zero probability, he's going to very likely accept their recommendation regardless what it is. Um, wow. He has the power, it's true, um, to, to say, no, we're not going to do this. But I think it's a very effective statute yeah. if it's handled in the right way by saying, look, we need an independent person to make this judgment. Okay, we've got their report. We've got what they think needs to be done. And if you accept that from a person who's not in any way suspect or biased, you've done a pretty good job of convincing reasonable people that you're managing the Justice Department in an apolitical way, and that's really important. Well, I'll tell you what, I hope we can stay in touch with you throughout this year because we're going to have some things to talk about. Donald Ayer, what a great pleasure to have you with us in studio, the former Deputy U.S. Deputy Attorney General and former Principal Deputy Solicitor General of the United States, now at Georgetown Law School. Wonderful to have you, Donald. Thank you. Thank you. And now uh, Merrick Garland is hearing from Republicans in the House. A letter out today 
from Congressman Jim Jordan, now the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. A letter to the attorney general demanding information on his handling of Joe Biden's classified document case and the appointment of a special counsel. The House Judiciary actually tweeted the letter. It's two pages, three pages. You can read it. It says people deserve uh, transparency and accountability from our most senior executive branch law enforcement officials. Please produce the following. And uh, they're asking for a couple of things here. Details about communications between DOJ, the FBI, the White House regarding the discovery of the documents. Where and when. But of course, the Department of Justice has little obligation and is not likely to respond with very much, if at all. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Thanks for being with us on Bloomberg Sound On, the fastest hour in politics. We'll reassemble the panel next. Rick Davis, Chidi Shanzana with us on a Friday. Thanks for being here. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. We're circling February 7 on our calendars. That's a Tuesday night. It'll be Joe Biden prime time, the political Super Bowl that is the State of the Union. Indeed, the invitation finally showed up here. A press secretary at the White House, Karine Jean-Pierre, uh, answering a question. In fact, I suspect she was going to announce this with reporters knowing that Speaker McCarthy had sent the note to the White House. Listen. So we have received Speaker uh, McCarthy's kind invitation and the president has accepted it uh, and looks forward to delivering the State of the Union uh, address on Tuesday, February 17th of 2023. So we have... Oh my God, I'm so sorry guys. On Tuesday, February 7th, 2023. Uh, The first big opportunity here, right, to address Congress since Republicans took control of the House earlier this year. We reassemble our signature panel. Rick Davis is here and Jeannie Shanzano. Uh, We were all together that night, as I I will always remember, we'll always have the State of the Union. And at that point, the big story was the still relatively new war in Ukraine uh, and the sanctions that on Russia that actually was bringing some support to President Joe Biden. We're in a very different world. You fast forward a year, Rick Davis how do you describe the landscape now? Like, what are the issues when they're sitting down to craft this speech that they need to get to in a, in a new divided Congress? Well, you have this uh, sort of uh, balancing act that you have to create between the real need to start articulating a uh, reason why Joe Biden would want to seek another term of office. Right. So why do you deserve that? And what would your vision be? And at the same time, address the many needs, both domestic and abroad, uh, that uh, challenged this administration. So it's, and, and the two of those are in conflict many times. Um, and so I think the way you would look at the Ukraine uh, war uh, from the perspective of what's happened in the last, um, you know, uh, 12 months is one thing. The way you want to talk about it as a candidate for president may be in another. Certainly the economy is going to be the number one item that will tug at that because obviously what the president will want to do on the economy as a candidate mm-hmm. is to um, uh, not address uh, the pressure uh, on on families around inflation uh, and what he's doing about it. Uh, he's he and, and as a president, he's going to talk about how that's the Federal Reserve's job because that's exactly his line for the last six months, yeah. and I can't imagine that changing. So when you look at how he will approach that, uh, in a uh, in a uh, state of the union for the first time in a divided Congress and, and potentially as a candidate for president, 
uh, it's really going to be uh, interesting to see how he emphasizes uh, the issues that are uh, pressing the uh, United States and the world. He's going to have Kevin McCarthy sitting behind him, Jeannie. How does this uh, new Republican majority in the House impact the contours of the speech? Who's he talking to? Well, he's going to be talking to the American public first and foremost. Um, And, you know, he is going to take a victory lap. I think everybody objectively can agree. He had many more legislative successes last year than any of us imagined. And he had quite a good number of successes on the foreign policy stage as well. So he's going to take a victory lap for some of those. And he's going to talk about how what they were able to achieve, everything from the Inflation Reduction Act to chips to gun control, how all of those have benefited and will continue to benefit the American public. And that's going to help him set his stage, as Rick was talking about, for his run, should he choose to run. And then he's going to have to address how he's going to work with a new Republican House. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think number one on the agenda is something we were just talking about, which is the debt ceiling. And I think he's going to use the opportunity to stress their commitment again to Social Security and Medicare and keeping those funded, which goes hand in hand with his, you know, potential run for the presidency again. And I also think he's going to talk a good deal about how he has strengthened commitments abroad and things like he was doing today, talking about chips and semiconductors with the prime minister of Japan, the Netherlands prime minister coming Tuesday. Those Mm -hmm. are very important for the American public and for the world and for our economy and our security. So I think he'll address those in the context of democracy and saving democracy at home and abroad. Well, he's got another speech uh, to make sooner. It's actually going to be this weekend. He's on his way to Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, where he will be at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Uh, Interestingly, that's where we were reporting on the Senate runoff. That's where Senator Warnock preaches. He's the pastor there. Uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms showed up in the White House briefing room today, the former mayor of Atlanta, uh, now an advisor in the White House. She's the, uh, the, the head of White House Public Engagement, the director, and talked about voting reform, among other issues that they are hoping to hear about on this trip to Atlanta. Listen. He's asked for Congress uh, to codify the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act and also um, the additional Voting Rights Act that's pending uh, before Congress. That's a Freedom to Vote Act. So the president has been very clear that voting, uh, the right to vote, the access to vote is a core a component of our democracy, and he's going to continue to push for that. But, of course, we're in a different world now with a Republican-led House. Uh, Jeannie, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms went on to say that the president's going to get an earful. I don't think she meant that in, in, a, in a sort of confrontational way, but that he was going to be hearing from a lot of people about things that they are still hoping he can accomplish on this trip to Atlanta. Is, is this going to be an easy trip for him? What's this speech going to be like? Yeah, and, and I think one of the reporters, I can't remember who, you mentioned that last time he went to Atlanta, many civil rights groups, voting rights groups folks skipped the speech because they really mm. have felt all along that the president has not taken action enough on that issue. And I do think that's an issue he's going to have to address. And I think he may have to promise or talk about ways that he can act unilaterally via executive order and others if Congress isn't going to act, which we know it is not, because this is something the base feels strongly about. We've got some big decisions in this regard coming from the Supreme Court in the not so distant future. And he's going to have to address that. And I think he probably starts on Monday with this speech in Atlanta. Rick Davis, what kind of an earful is the president in for? 
Well, I think, you know, you, you foretold it. Uh, it you know, there are a lot of constituency groups, uh, especially in uh, southern states that have been racked with civil rights problems over history, uh, who uh, would love to see this administration speak out more on voting rights. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, you've had record turnout in these southern states um, uh, before and after some of these uh, Republican initiatives went into effect in 2021. So, um, there's a little cause and effect uh, imbalance uh, by some of the some of the uh, folks articulating the need for change, and he's and he's saddled now with a with a Republican House, which means the likelihood of anything related to voting rights is 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 going to get bogged down in Congress. Well, yeah, so that, I mean that uh, Electoral Count Act was it, right, Rick? I mean that was the deal uh, going into the end of the year. That was as close as they were going to get. Yeah, that was probably the best you could think that would get done at the beginning of the year, and and it did get done. Which you know, kudos to the Congress and the administration for fixing that. Um, but the reality is, there's also very little appetite on Capitol Hill for this, right? Uh, that that was yesterday's uh, problem. Uh, there are many other big issues facing Congress, and I'd be surprised even if Democrats want to tee this up. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano straight ahead with some final thoughts as voters in New York launch the Where's George Santos campaign. Is this humor or are they doxing the freshman congressman? We'll talk about it next. Live from Washington, this is Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Sound On is brought to you by Innovation Refunds. This is your daily reminder. Your daily reminder from Innovation Refunds. If you're looking for ways to grow your business, get back the money that you may be eligible to receive through the employee retention credit. Sign up now before it's too late. See if your business qualifies for ERC assistance at GetRefunds.com. 
So George Santos has another day in paradise running away from people. He did tell lawmakers or reporters, I should say, to have a, a good weekend while he was running to his car. All the while, voters in the third congressional district of New York are launching a new campaign. Uh, Democratic voters, I should say. It's called Where's George Santos? Uh, get ready for the signs and apparently a lot of social media posts. Uh, Democratic legislator uh, John Lafazan says Santos is in hiding. He's a Nassau County lawmaker. Listen. If George Santos won't come to us, then we'll come to him. You don't get away with being the biggest fraud in modern American political history. All right. Well, let's bring in Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano uh, because they have helped us uh, walk through all of this so far. This campaign encourages people who see the congressman in public to take a picture of him, post it on social media. They had a big rally in front of his office today or where it's supposed to be in Douglastown. Uh, is this a good idea, Rick, or are they they going to actually put this guy in some danger here? No, this is highly entertaining politics. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, look, I mean, I, I, I've produced a number of ads where, you know, bloodhounds are searching all over town for the candidate I'm running against, you know, or, or, or where's the guy, you know. So this is pretty tried and true politics. Um, uh, and he is hiding. He's hiding from the press in Washington. He's hiding from his voters in his district. And, and, and these guys are smart. They're going to make it as painful as possible. They're actually doing the Republicans job for them because, you know, Republican officials in his, his, you know, state has, have already almost unanimously, uh, you know, have called for his resignation. And now the Democrats are just going to haunt him. If I were them, I'd get a bunch of bloodhounds and I'd post themselves (laughs) outside his house. I mean, you know, you could make this into a wonderful circus and, and every now and then politics needs to be a circus. Well, it is a circus here, uh, Jeannie. Apparently that office is vacant still. I mean, does he dare set up an office in the local district? Yeah. You know, do you think he really meant that he hopes the reporters have a good weekend there? Um, It's (laughs) hard to believe. Yeah, apparently they had to change the name on the sign on the office. It was still for Tom Swazi, who was his predecessor. So they have a lot of work to do. And, you know, it's not just Democrats. Republicans are already, you know, lining up. There's now seven in Congress. We had um, Paul Ryan come out today and say he's got to go. So the pressure is on and it's not just on. George Santos, it is on Kevin McCarthy. This has overshadowed to a certain extent his first week, which was already chaotic enough. So the question is, how long can he keep this up? How long does he want to just stick with this guy? Well, I think two years is the answer, isn't it? I don't know. Uh, Rick, if this goes to a special election, it is believed that's a district won by uh, Joe Biden. It's believed that that could very well go to a Democrat. Kevin McCarthy loses and a really badly needed vote. He's just not going to let that happen, is he? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, obviously that's not a good outcome for Kevin McCarthy. Um, and, a, and, and, and a Republican win in that district if uh, George Santos uh, uh, resigns and chooses not to, to participate in politics anymore, yeah. which w- you would assume a resignation would trigger. But it, that's totally up to Santos. I mean, like the reality is the speaker has very little he can do other than to make George Santos's life miserable inside of Congress. He can't expel him. Uh, And so uh, it's really up to George Santos. And at some point, Kevin McCarthy's going to wish Santos would make up his mind and actually decide to go home. But um, uh, this is going to play out for quite some time because you have to, in this case, it may be the only truth 
that come out of George Santos's mouth, which is he refuses <laughs> to resign. Well, there it is. He's got a week off, though, right, Jeannie? House out of session next week. Take a picture of him for us. We see him in New York. <laughs> I will do. I hope, <laughs> I hope you have a long weekend. I'll meet you back here Tuesday with the best panel in the business. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.